It's good if you can do something where your physical health is important but not critical. Because <laughs> mm. as you get older, it's uh, I mean, you think about it. Into I was listening to um, it was an interview with, and I'm going to get this wrong now. Was it Francis Ford Coppola, director? Mm-hmm. He still he must still be alive. I'm going. I'm, going, I'm terrible at messing things up like this. Anyway, I think. I think he's still alive. He's still alive. He is. Things move quick. Anyway, <laughs> he's in his 80s then. Yeah. And he, someone asked him, he's just done the film. I'm not even sure what, I can't even remember what it was. Anyway, someone basically said, is this the last film you're going to do or mm. whatever? And he, said, he says, no, I've got five in the pipeline and more coming. And it's like, you mean, I've got loads going on. And, mm-hmm. and, it, and I think... It's that mentality that drives you forwards, that you don't stop, you just, he's seeing his next projects. The only thing that's going to stop him is it, and the, the rest is he's just going to keep going, whereas the interviewer was like, the kind of acceptance was that you would now stop because you're mm-hmm. in that box of yeah. being... Then you can carry on as long as you can physically keep doing it. So that's the great thing with creativity. Any form of creativity, really. This is why I keep trying to... Well, I have all my life tried to explain to my children that creativity isn't just like painting pictures. It's a kind of an attitude. Mm -hmm. It's it's an inquisitive, creative attitude and you're born with lots of it and you need to harness it and enjoy it and everything is about discovery and everything else and don't let yourself get bashed down that that's a bad thing and... It's quite, you know, and that's why, like, people like Coppola are still there. It's because probably their brain is still thinking as they were when they were a teenager and just seeing all those opportunities and as excited and inquisitive about it as before. Welcome to That's My Niche. This podcast is on the hunt for professions across all disciplines to get a glimpse into the worlds, mindsets and passions of successful people. I'm your host, Nina Dorfer. Sit back and enjoy listening with me. coming and for being here and doing this in person I think it's uh I think it's very I'm really excited to ask you all these questions about uh, your inflatable uh, business <laughs> so when you meet somebody new what how do you describe your business or how do you pitch the your business activities um how would you describe your unique niche I think Okay, the thing, the thing, well, thanks for having me, <laughs> to be formal. Um, it's great to be here. And I, I, I prefer, by the way, prefer to do it in person. For all of what's been going on with um, COVID mm-hmm. and online, I've become very relaxed now doing online meetings and calls and various other bits. But I, I'm definitely of the camp where I really like to get out and meet people. I, I, I can do... I can do it as a convenience, as an infill, but ultimately the thought of not going to a space and not seeing things and like this, we would never have got to experience this tea. Exactly. You know, and I think we need to be really, really, really super careful with this idea of homeworking and not going to offices and stuff. I think it really is a slippery slope. I certainly... And this isn't me just being an old fogey. This is like actually genuinely thought of not connecting. It's mm. scary. Mm. Like the thought that people might have a career and not meet their their colleagues yeah. or hardly meet them. Yeah. It's ter- anyway, that's another thing. For me, it's really, I find it actually really hard to say because my default answer is I just say I'm a designer. Mm-hmm because that's what I trained as. Mm-hmm. So it's very simple. I trained as a designer, so I am a designer. What, when I think about what I, what I say my business does, 
one thing is that what I've done with my business, whilst we've had this consistent air theme running through it, the inflatable element, the business has morphed and changed probably six or seven times in the 20 odd years I've been working. So the answers change according to where the business is at at the time. So at this particular moment, if we draw a line in the sand, I actually have two businesses and they, they do two very different things but complement each other. And both are connected to air for my sins. The first is Inflate and that's the business I started in 95. And that as that started and that morphed into becoming like a product company and various other things. It is now more of my consultancy side. I use Inflate as my kind of experimental ad hoc client based work. So like I was saying earlier, like I could be working on shop fittings for Nike, a jacket for Louis Vuitton or a packaging thing for a bike company. There's, there's a kind of, it's around the kind of consultancy side. So Inflate is like a kind of my air consultancy business. It's, it's special, very specialist niche work based on years of experience. And then the other company, the other business is Airclad, which is my structure events business mm-hmm. where we've developed this modular, our own modular system of structures for doing event marketing activations, very sort of premium end stuff. In both of them, my role is the same. I'm the creative director, designer, founder, visionary of the businesses. That's what I do. But they kind of sit there separately. So like I said, I'm a designer. I trained as a designer. I make inflatable objects and I make mobile event structures. That's my kind of answer if if I can sort of contextualise it and answer it really. Okay, so let's go back to your training. Um, what do you consider were your formative years? Was it more when you trained at university or did that come more from like a professional experience, experiences that you've had? So the, I suppose I think that you can't underestimate the influence that college has on you in the end. I think ultimately when you strip everything back, you come to decisions that were influenced by what you did at college, Mm -hmm. at least to begin with. And if that clicks, it becomes very influential for the rest of your life. So for me, discover, you know, going to college in London, finding the machine by chance, in the college that made allowed me to make an inflatable at college was very unusual. But then that coupled with living in London and kind of the fast pace connectivity to creative industries, they kind of all gelled together. The thing the thing with it when you go back to the kind of the the formative years and the influence I never, I set up my businesses straight from college. I actually set them up while I was in college, so I've never worked for anyone else. Mm-hmm. So I don't have any experience. And there's... That's pretty daring to do, <laughs> don't you think? I came out of college in the early 90s at the, at the sort of back end of a very heavy recession in the UK. Mm-hmm. So basically we were in a bad place. And so, you know, risk is... Risk is associated to what you can lose. Mm -hmm. And if you've got nothing to lose, the risk then is actually very low. Mm -hmm. So for me, whilst it sounds can sound daring, it actually was a very pragmatic approach at the time, which was like, what have you got to lose? Mm -hmm. If it works, great. If not, do something else. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think the bit that's really, I find, that's remained consistent is that as a design studio and a business, we don't run very much like a business. It runs like a student hostel. Because <laughs> that's the only experience I have of working with other people is when I was at college. So it's very much a college mentality. And it's a little bit chaotic. But we make things happen and we pull together when we need to to make things happen. Exactly as you do at college, you get people help out and pull together. So 
you know, that was the, yeah, the sort of main of the, the main influence there, um, was, was just, and it's happy accidents to a degree, but what I would say, just going back to it, is that uh, create, as again, I have to talk contextually when I was going through education, when I was studying before college, I had no idea of the world of what the world of design was. When I was at school, there was painting, as in art, mm. there was pottery, and I don't think there was anything else. I think we had graphics. So we had graphics, a course called graphics, painting and pottery, or mm. fine art as it was. No sense of... I mean, I... Did, I got into design through foundation course that then showed me that there was other things other than graphics and mm-hmm. and that. And I think that's that was the biggest thing that was for me was how could there be a whole industry, the scale of create, creative industries, and we don't even talk about it. That was my biggest shock when, mm-hmm. I, when I got into it. So for me, getting into design the first time of being at college was I was just eyes wide open, couldn't believe everything like we sit here in this room everything in this room has been designed and considered by someone mm-hmm. yeah i'd grown up my whole life taking it for granted mm-hmm. and that and i still think lots of people do oh definitely yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. they don't know what goes into like designing something or figuring out how to make something work or what uh, i don't know like half a centimeter makes a difference everything a whole lot and um and, uh, and actually saying that, talk about sizes, this is going right off on a tangent. I was with, uh, in a design office about two weeks ago with a company, a company called Pearson Lloyd, and they design, uh, they're working on and they've been designing aeroplane seats. And during the conversation, they mentioned that they have to design them to go through the door. And now, now that's quite obvious, but I'd never considered the constraints of getting a, a seat through an aeroplane door and like you're talking about size I just remember I just remember thinking that would be just complete I just assumed that the plane was built and the seats went in but you realise yeah, they, they go in like our apartment so I was there and it really was like yeah actually you're right these seats are big and they've got to go yeah. in and they've got motors mm-hmm. and they've got mm-hmm. so um, anyway digress sorry <laughs> No, it's a nice anecdote. It's just like... It's a good anecdote, very practical. So, sometimes I wonder, going back, um, I think it also has to do with asking myself, what is my purpose? (laughs) Or what do I like to do and why do I like to do it? So, um, was there something that you really liked to do as a kid? that um, maybe is in connection with what you enjoy doing uh, today, professionally? I think that there's a danger, for me, there's a danger with, all, with these types of questions that you post-rationalise your youth to fit with your future. So, like, I, I, th- I consider myself a really ordinary child. I grew up in a stable family like, like almost a classic family husband wife husband was kind of was a breadwinner actually my mum was as well and I had a sister and we had a dog mm-hmm. and we lived in a semi-detached house mm-hmm. and I really liked that there's this kind of really really safe comforting growing up and I grew up playing with the toys that you would lego mm-hmm. scale electrics making trains you know you grew up with that and so when you when you look at what they do now you kind of think to yourself well did that influence what you do yes fascination with construction and making stuff is it massively different to someone else is maybe not but then I think it's the I think the biggest thing when you think about that is the when I look at things now, is that having a stable ha- home to grow up in allows you as an individual to be more free because you have a sense of support. Yeah. So I would imagine people that have a very insecure house will become very, very less confident to go out and try stuff. So I think it's the security of home has a massive impact on your ability to be more comfortable to think outside the box. 
than than other things. But I certainly uh, certainly know that growing up, my fascinations with certain stuff, and it's like now when I look at my children, the worrying amount of time they spend with their fingers on the screen, mm. or why I, I kind of. I know when I was younger, I watched a lot of television, which mm-hmm. was very naughty. Mm-hmm. But I did a lot of painting, and I listened to my records, and I did my stuff. So we were still rebellious in our way, and probably annoying to our parents, as my children are now. And I reckon that there's something else that will come from that. I can't. It. It's just we all evolve, but I think the security of feeling comfortable and supported is the best way to then allow yourself the freedom to push yourself and explore more yeah i really i really agree on that like uh, the more structure that you have and also the environment um that makes you feel safe uh also allows you to fail in a way because you know like oh like i'm i'm safe so yeah i can like try go try out stuff this is my biggest thing failure is i you don't No, you hear these expressions that the dot com companies say fail fast, you know, mm-hmm. or whatever it is they say, fail fast and learn and move mm-hmm. on. And I, having looked at this with my children, I find it fascinating now looking back at edu- looking at education now how failure is portrayed as failure, mm-hmm. and how scared people are of failing. Whereas we all know full well that things don't always go right, things do fail. You don't want to wantonly fail, but you want to know that failure isn't a, necessarily a bad thing. It's just an output. It's an it's an output of a process that's fail. Mm. And you, whereas they do, they're genuinely scary. How you know that we're saying about support and everything. If you're then going for an education system whereby failing is seen so negatively then it's hard to relax and let yourself let yourself go and i think it's uh really again with the comfort and the support that's the other aspect but that's an aspect that was really badly presented in this world yeah i mean back then when when i grew up um the internet came about but it was nothing like it was today so today with all the, this social media that uh, ma- makes up yeah that yeah you spend um, every day it kind of uh, takes up your some of your time but it also i think the worst part about it that you start uh, to compare yourself because you have so much You have, you, have, you have so much input, like, yeah, like, there is millions of people doing millions of things, creating 24-7, like, yeah, uh, it's it's too much, but then, then you feel so small, because, like, yeah, like, what am I doing? Because you're comparing the sum of things that are on the internet with, like, the one thing that you're doing, and I think... Uh, yeah, it's totally unhealthy. Like I limited my phone to like one hour a day, and then the phone shuts down the app, and I don't open it again. And it feels very, very good. It's good if you can. I, I agree with you entirely. I think the I think the social media thing. You have to really condition yourself to sometimes just smile at the amount of what what you can see and what makes you think you mm-hmm. mean everybody looks like they're having this amazing mm-hmm. time and it's very easy to get FOMO mm-hmm. and um but I, I like I would love I, I the idea of switching off is an interesting thought oh you can just put, put it in your phone yeah no but you don't <laughs> <laughs> do you know what's really scary and I see I think about this a lot I now walk so much to the office. I walk to my office and back because uh, it's close. And That's my dream. Uh, <laughs> that, that was my dream as well. Mm. And it, is, it is actually quite nice. Mm. The, um, but I spend, I often spend the whole time on my phone. Oh, really? Yeah, no, literally. Looking at it. Looking and doing emails. Oh, like really? literally filling in that walk with, with chores. That's, mm. And that's really really bad really bad I'm not a good example on this phone 
texting, emailing, social thing. I'm, I'm not good at it, but I do a lot of it. <laughs> you know I mean, I'm not an expert or someone that you go, well, this guy's really smashing it. I'm like someone that's just, I'm a victim. I'm the victim end. That's where I'm at. I'm the victim. Yeah, you know, it, it takes a lot of discipline. And I don't know, I think, but it also, it's, it's also, we're creatures of habit, you know? So in the beginning, it was like, what? Like, just, I, I've already spent an hour on the. I wouldn't want, I genuinely wouldn't want to know what go what the time bit of it i hate looking at it now i'm now looking at it like it's got horns because it's evil but it's uh yeah but now um i think it also created more a sense of the time that i spend on social media and sometimes i'm like oh yeah like this must already been almost an hour and i'm kind of glad when it comes to that hour so that i don't you know so then it just like shuts down so it's not like an option anymore it's yeah, but it's totally you totally it's have really, to self-regulate. Yeah, it's if, and, and that is a crazy thing. I know that's it, and it is a healthy thing to do. Yeah, it's a really healthy thing to do because there is, as we were saying earlier, there is more to life than that little uh, five-inch screen yeah. with a battery pack behind it. Yeah, yeah, it's totally it's totally taking over. Let me ask you about the early days of uh, the studio that you've created back in 95. What were some of the early uh, lessons that you've learned? Some, some hard ones, some eye-opening ones. And what are the lessons that you still learn today? Wow, this is the biggest subject ever. <laughs> the, um, I think if I go right back to the beginning, the first thing was I thought I knew everything. That's the first lesson. If I jump to where we are now, the older I've got, the more I've realised how little I know. And that's not mm. me saying that. It's a, there's a, someone said the older we get, the, the more we realise how little we know. And mm. I think, for me, when you look at lessons, when I first started, there's a degree of ignorance that helps you do things that you wouldn't normally do. Mm -hmm. And particularly in terms of, you know, in terms of, it, as I've got older, it's easier to spot why you shouldn't do something. And that sometimes subliminally edits out an opportunity of discovery. So I've done a lot of time trying to remember to be a bit more careless. Mm -hmm. But definitely at the start, that ignorance had its strengths but it had its weaknesses and one of the things that happened really early on for me was uh, we had a lot of press in the early days and this was pre the internet or sort of the sort of merging but definitely pre-internet so magazines were much bigger mm -hmm. and so getting in the magazine meant a lot and there was a lot more magazines around and we we get we we always spent a lot of money on photographing our work with professional photographers, which meant that we got a lot of images into the press in good good spaces. So imagine if you're a photo editor and you get given ten images, and one set of images are shot professionally and look great, and the other five are just done with a handheld by someone that can't take a picture. You're going to put all of the professional ones in because they look good. Mm. And one of the things, I remember a client come up to me, we did a job that went horribly wrong. It was a big inflatable cloud and this thing just didn't work. And uh, it went horribly wrong and it was embarrassing because it was hung up really high in an exhibition hall and, and, uh, and it didn't work, but they couldn't take it down. So the fact that it didn't work was very visible because it was hung up high and they couldn't take it down. And... Um, the client was really nice and came around and she said, look, Nick, she says, you've got a real problem you need to be careful with. She said, your exposure in magazines is giving people the illusion that you're a lot more accomplished and a lot more able than you actually are. And you need to remember that when you're taking on projects, mm -hmm. that you're still very new to this game. And that, and that was my first big lesson was how to remember where you really are in the process. Mm -hmm and where, where the boundaries are. And I will say to this day, I still push over those boundaries. <laughs> so it, it's not gonna end, but I've become more aware of them. Mm -hmm. And so there's a degree of um, 
me being a bit more aware that I've gone over the line and put some more protection measures around mm. it. But in those days, I just thought we could do anything. And I kind of felt an anxious urge to do more. I felt like, because I was just starting, I felt like I had to catch up. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't want to stop doing anything. Mm-hmm. So things were more risky. Mm-hmm. But um, that was that was the kind of main one that sort of stayed as the core thread. I thought, what was the rest of the bits of the questions? I can't remember if there was another. You asked like five questions in one go. Yeah, so, okay, that was a hard lesson and also like an eye-opening one. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the lessons that you still learn today. But I think, right, like I said, I think it continues really from that one based on experience mm-hmm. and stuff like that. You mean there's... You know, I mean, there's lessons in business, there's lessons in life, and there's lessons in design. They're all kind of different, different things. The thing is, that, you know, as you as you're aware, it, the learning and discoveries is one of the most exciting things. If we knew what the output was going to be every time, it's quite boring. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of looking for. I call it in some cases you call it a happy accident. Yeah. But that means it was an accident that worked well. <laughs> Rather than an unhappy accident. Yeah, I think like happy accidents are more the the, the, the the desirable ones. Exactly. I always remember when I was at the Royal College, one of the professors was trying to explain to us the design process that, that they were trying to get us to kind of embrace. And well, they ref- they started to refer to something called, which I've always, I've used to this day, it was, it was the expression of creating opportunity of chance. Mm-hmm. That you can't, you can't, if you want to develop beyond what you've already seen, you need to create these opportunities of chance to take you forwards. And that is a case of then kind of, it's almost like a relaxing, you've got to relax to allow and encourage this to happen, mm-hmm. but you don't fully control it, mm-hmm. but you've got to be, have your wits about you to recognise and seize on it as it does happen it's kind of like a and that's why it says sort of that's the sort of more professional way of describing a happy accident but mm-hmm. I think there is a a genuine process because when I started with inflatables all the first prototypes when I first started doing it I was drawing things and trying to make them like literally drawing it like so I draw a waste paper bin now try and make an inflatable one it was it was terrible and and that was going on for probably about a few months it was going nowhere at all and then I was trying to make a kind of mechanism for this weird pop-up toaster and I was trying to weld this jacket that goes around this pop-up toaster and the whole idea of the pop-up toaster was is you push the whole toaster down flat not sure how the toast worked in there. But then when it finished, it all popped up like a big thing. <laughs> and so it had this spring in motion. And so I designed this, because I had my welding machine then, and I was still at college, I designed these like spokes around this thing that looks a bit like a drum. And when I was making it, I accidentally welded three wrong. <laughs> and when I looked at them, I was like, oh my God, this looks like the side of a fruit bowl. So I made another nine of them and then joined them all together and I went, oh, this is a cool little fruit bowl. And that's when the penny dropped for me was that when you're designing with inflatables, particularly where I was at stage, it wasn't drawing designing. It was all about just making stuff and seeing what happened and letting the process take you on the journey. And that had been a really killer part of the whole process because you are you are the student in the process and the teacher you're doing mm-hmm. both ends and you're you've got to embrace the whole lot and and then things would happen and you would become more curious about certain things and even to today we're working on some new stuff and it's the, the basis is actually concepts of welding stuff together with a sense that they could lead to something, mm-hmm. but we don't know what they're going to be. <laughs> but the, and this is the bit that I really love, is that, and I was saying this, I think I say this to my children a lot, which is, you know, as a creator, 
you're allowed to decide if it's right or wrong. Mm-hmm. If I make an inflatable and I've created it, I could decide if it's finished or not. Yeah. So you can just decide. That's it. It's done. I think it's also such a layered process because you, with every step that you make, you also learn with every step. Like, oh, there was a step step in the right direction or wrong or in the unknown and you don't know what's next. And so you like... So it's also, uh, yeah, it's like, as you say, like you're the student and the teacher because it's also for you to decide what to do next. But also, exactly that. And also, the if you do something, you don't have to force it to be something. It can be like a suspended opportunity mm-hmm. that you can go back to. So I've got lots of weird inflatable stuff that I've made that means nothing. But then maybe someone walks into the studio and goes, look, I'm really trying to do this. And you go, oh my God, I know exactly <laughs> what you need. But you can never know that if you haven't made the tests. Yeah. And you have to just be open. And those, but the, and this is the other bit, it's like exactly, there's not forcing them. It's just knowing when it feels right and when it doesn't. That's actually even harder, but that's just an intuitive process but you just yeah you have to make lots of stuff and be open to it yeah so um getting a bit into the inflating the technical uh aspect of um of project so what is the framework of uh tools software um to make something inflated? So we can look at this in a number of ways now. So for me personally, everything I do right now is based on manually developing patterns and testing. So I always start with some cardboard templates, very much like dressmaking, but with a, a degree of geometry overlaid and a sense of how it's going to swell. So there's no requirement for anything other than that and obviously a machine to seal the plastic together. Mm -hmm. But I have also said to a lot of people that want to experiment with inflatables that don't have access to like a welding machine, you can just do it with polythene and sellotape. Mm -hmm. You can still test stuff. You don't need to have the machinery. You can can make an inflatable out of a black bin liner and yeah, it's a bit more fiddly, but you can test something. Mm-hmm. So that on that level, it can be incredibly analog, mm-hmm. like really basic patterns, weld, and it's all done, you know, by hand in that format. When we get into uh, larger structures and more complex patterning, when we get sort of up to 5, 10, 20 metres, all of that is done on the computer. Mm-hmm. But all of it uses, all of it goes back to the basic principles of what was done with the first products. So you're using the knowledge and all you're doing is digitizing that knowledge and scaling it up. And it's more manageable on the computer. You, and we use Rhino mm-hmm. to do most of the patterning. I can't use it, but I am learning. I was writing it down there. I'm learning iPad. I'm learning to... Uh, I'm going to learn how to do stuff on the, on the computer, like with my iPad and try and draw stuff. But fundamentally, I'm just drawing and making handmade patterns. Mm-hmm. But the guys can do everything in Rhino, and then you can visualise it and turn it around and see everything. But you still have to know all about the internal seams and how the patterns go together and alignments and everything else. So there's still a lot to it but those it and those tend to be the two steps rhino to create the 3d patterns and then the 2d analog patterns as well to test stuff so f- when you do things in rhino and you have a i don't know like a 10 meter structure do you then create does the program then create the pattern pieces that you print out or how does that work for what we're doing you're asking slightly the wrong person, but I'm going to answer it as best as I can with <laughs> my knowledge. We, the patterns have to be manually unwrapped. Mm-hmm. 
and then we put notches in them to create all the alignment and that's all done manually. There are some patterns that will unroll and do certain things. Because we're often working with the twin wall structures and the nature of often how we're putting things together, there isn't, I don't think there's a pattern that just takes the 3D and does it. We manually do mm -hmm. all of it. Mm -hmm. And it's quite, it, it, in fact, it's, it, it's quite, to a degree, slightly tedious, but it's every layer of work you do is an opportunity to spot problems. Mm -hmm. So you see it, it's also a QC stage that you actually start to unwrap it and you look at it and hopefully if you've missed something at one stage, you're spotting it at another stage. And so there's that, that degree of it. But I love, um, I've wanted to get some prints done. I love when you just flat out all the patterns for a structure and you get all these crazy, crazy shapes. And some of them are really like, socks that have been pulled in, I can, I'm determined to knock this light over just so you know I'm, I'm going to break it <laughs> it's right above you the, um, uh, no you get all these crazy patterns and I love those just graphically mm -hmm. just look amazing and so uh, that's all, all that but yeah that's quite a technical process of clicking lots of mouse clicking and click 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 yeah click. yeah because um, I recently started to use Blender and I've made and I've and one of the things that I like, I made a sofa and then you just create like a rectangle and then you have this option to inflate and it just <laughs> inflates the pillow. And I thought, oh, this is really cool. I had someone in the other day in the office that was showing us something which inflate. It might be the same thing. Yeah. But does it, the thing with it is it's just, I, I like those as well. I don't know how it helps to actually create a, create the patterns but I like the process yeah and then um, yeah for the unwrapping there is also an option because I used it to digitalize the fabrics that I've made and to make them into a digital fabric to put them then on the on the sofa to okay. because if you have like a little fabric swatch you know you can like obviously it's important to feel the quality yeah. and the uh, the color in real life, but it's really hard to imagine it on a piece of furniture for anyone. So this is why I <laughs> particularly <created> clients. <laughs> particularly What's clients. What's it gonna look like? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like okay, yeah, I could, yeah, but also some some patterns. Uh, the repetition of the pattern is like really big. Yeah. So I can't like send out like a one by one meter swatch to everybody so they can see the full pattern. So. Uh, so yeah, I also discovered this option of uh, you have to unwrap the pillow to digi okay. digitally to put it on your fabric and then it wraps it. Wraps it. That's good. And together. that's Blender. That's Blender, yeah. That's interesting. But I think they must work all the same. All the three... But is it a stock sofa or is it a sofa you've designed? Well, I mean, I made a tutorial, but it was like from scratch. So I made every little piece, I'd, every little piece. But it was the first step to then obviously design like my own stuff and have more freedom because um, to make uh, knitted things, you always need a, you, you always need something else to make it into a product. It doesn't yeah. exist on its own. No, yeah. So this is why I think it's a really great opportunity to have uh, this digital universe where you can create stuff yeah. and it looks so realistic, it's insane. Um, well, that's what's funny, is that computer technology has changed in my, in my time so much. Yeah. It's so funny when you look what you're describing now. I can appreciate even without seeing it, the quality that will come. You go back 15 years, they would have never, would, could yeah. never happen. Could yeah. ne you could never do that. Yeah. It's just the resolution, the quality that just couldn't happen at all. And I think it's funny because it's like, with these sorts of things, it's like you said, it's a tool to help something. But it's also really interesting because you're creating something. Mm -hmm. So you sort of, you sort of create this byproduct, this mm -hmm. sort of design and 
that kind of exists digitally as well, which is sort of interesting how we have all this stuff that then gets produced. And we produce loads and loads of digital data that just mm -hmm. sits on Dropbox, <laughs> <laughs> basically. Well, you must have a really big archive. Well, this is it, because you, I don't know what size files you get to, because we have so much imagery, it's so it's so scary how much data we store. I wouldn't say mm. we we do have an incredible loads and loads of images, but and it's just how big that data is. Yeah. Yeah, and then believe me, it's not the scale. There's nothing to the. There's no relationship between that and the quality. There's a lot of stuff on our Dropbox which should be deleted. It mm -hmm. just shouldn't be there. But there's just so much of it produced. Mm -hmm. Just so we produce so much now. Like years ago, when you know, we think you go back to camera film, you would be very careful with what pictures you took mm -hmm. and what you developed mm -hmm. and everything else and where you what you kept. You know. Whereas now you think nothing of uploading two hundred images of a of a of a test of a widget in the factory yeah. <laughs> it doesn't deserve it. It doesn't deserve two hundred images of data to be set. It just doesn't deserve it. You need to you need one or two. You need to have and and because we, we can we do. Mm -hmm. And I'm a real victim of that. I, mm -hmm. I I I take pictures and then I I try more and more to edit. I try to delete stuff and go no this is get rid of it get rid of it get rid of it. Mm -hmm. The thing that stops me is um, the, I'm worried because I'm not very good at knowing what's right and what's wrong, mm -hmm. even though I have to make these decisions. I keep everything, <laughs> whereas I should have to get, you know, you should just have one or two pictures. You're a digital hoarder. Yeah, that's what it is, and yeah. it needs to be, need someone to go into my Dropbox and yeah. just do, randomly de delete stuff. Yeah, probably. <laughs> It'd be, be scary as hell. There's another thing for the to-do list, isn't it? That's a great retirement project, isn't it? It's an amazing retirement project. Cleaning up your whole life's database of images. What are you going to do in retirement? I'm going to. I've got from 1993 to 2000 or whatever, and I'm going to tidy it and file it. Yeah, you're going to be busy. <laughs> yeah, you would. So how can I, um, if a client comes to you? And they, what does a brief look like, or what does a problematic uh, look like? Um... I, I'm answering these all in a similar way, which is worrying me. The funny thing with a brief is that, and I've said this, one of the things I love hearing from designers is, oh, that's a really crap brief. Because actually the brief is as good as you make it. Mm -hmm. Even if it's a terrible brief, mm -hmm. as a creative, it's within our powers to take it somewhere. Mm -hmm. And actually, a really awful brief is potentially better than a really good brief. Because a really good brief is giving you lots of nice, juicy things to work with. But actually, then, what are you pushing against? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whereas if you've got a brief that's really gritty, someone says, look, we've got no budget and we've got to do this. But it needs to be here in two weeks. You're like, right, okay, this is a nightmare. And actually it's a good brief because it's like, right, okay, we've only got two weeks. That means lots of pontificating is out the window. We're looking for a bold one-off idea that's going to come in a kind of dump and that's it. And that's kind of, can be quite energising. Mm -hmm. Whereas like a really detailed brief that's really taking you down the journey where really it's like so obvious where you're going can actually be quite, quite uninterested, even though it could be amazing. But I think when we do internal briefs a bit, I do them where I write, if we're doing the development of an in-house product, we'll write them out of what we're trying to do. It's very kind of, kind of organise-y type stuff. It's not very exciting because a lot of it's quite technical. It's on the airclad side. But, the, but most clients actually don't really write briefs. Normally it's just a kind of semi-demand and you basically invent the brief out of it. So a lot of the time there isn't much. As I, as I was pointing out earlier, like the brief recently from Nike was a sketch of a poncho, which was just the outline, mm -hmm. and a picture of a Nike Air Max sole. Mm -hmm. so you a picture of a sole but quite a sweet little outline drawing of this poncho. And then, and then basically the brief was, 
make it work. <laughs> and that's yeah. it. So you're inventing everything that is between the two images. Yeah. But what's scary with creativity, and I'm sure you must come across this, which is, like I said earlier, we if I'm designing my only thing for myself, I can define when it ends. Mm-hmm. If with creativity and you're working with a client, they define when it ends. Yeah. And creativity is so open-ended mm-hmm. that sometimes if the brief changes and moves and the client can't make a decision, the project can never end, mm-hmm. which, is, which is really, that's a scary situation to be in. So does it also happen that you make uh, an endless amount of prototypes and it's never finished or...? Well, there is a beautiful thing that solves this problem. Yeah. And that's called money. <laughs> yes. So we use money as the lever mm-hmm. to control yeah, yeah. that. So basically, yes, one could keep making prototypes. The question is, with a prototype, so you could keep making prototypes and keep billing for it, but yeah, it's fine, you want another prototype? Mm-hmm. But then there's a sort of responsibility of like, I, for me, often when I do a job and I don't quite know how it's going to be, I mentally allow for the fact that I'm going to do more time on it than mm-hmm. I'm billing for because I'm going to need to work something out. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm kind of working out for me, not for you. You're going to get a result. Mm-hmm. But I kind of know I'm going to go through this journey, so I have to suck up that myself. Mm-hmm. And But the question with that is, like, where are the boundaries of that? Mm-hmm. You know, and I we worked, this year worked for three fashion houses. And one of them, the projects were so complex that I was waking up in the morning, like, super early, processing in my head ways to solve the problem and I I actually brought you one of the things here to show you which is and I um I woke up and I was like oh, I know how to do it and I had to go straight to the office to the studio because I was like I've because the value of solving it was so great mm-hmm. that the time of sleeping in bed was not worth it I was yeah, like no, no bed's over no because you can't sleep you can't fall back asleep anyways and also solving the problem and not having it linger any longer because like I said they can go on you know we do all have deadlines so deadlines come and stop things anyway but fundamentally yeah controlling that and it's like your own passion to resolve it it's like a what's it like it's like a kind of uh like a endurance thing like a runner that goes running and they're pushing themselves it's the same thing you're like I know I'm gonna solve it's gonna make it great kind of thing So what was the most satisfying project ever? That is almost impossible. And I don't, I'm trying to think of, as we sit here now, most satisfying, God, there's so many years of stuff. I'm trying to think, like, I think if you go back, if I go back to the start, when I did the fruit bowl (laughs) and that clicked together, that was so satisfying. Because not only did I get a product, but I got a realisation Mm-hmm. of an approach I think now I think now the it's really it's really difficult because it's it, it, you know there's different types of things that excite you when you say it's satisfying it's like I've made so many inflatables it's like different it's really difficult i can't think what the most satisfying thing is if it's stood out okay what's the opposite look was there like a horrible nightmare project (laughs) how long have you got (laughs) we're i mean when you go i think when you when i morphed from doing smaller products into bigger structures that became because i said earlier i'm a designer product designer i'm not an architect and I've been working for the last 10, 15 years in a much more architectural world. So we've been talking, I've been in my head as we've been talking and mainly thinking of Inflate, but I work now massively in the architectural world and um, events. And uh, there's, a, there's a legal responsibility. And so some of the first inflatable structures we did, we never had any issues with them but I always knew that 
if anything went wrong and people are inside, you're into a whole new world of of issues. And so that was quite stressful. Mm-hmm. And we had we had a few issues over the years. Never issues with the design, but issues of consequence of other actions around you. So when you're doing big structures, you can't see everything in one go. So if someone on the other side, say, pulls a fan out and the structure starts to go down, then the structure hits something inside and that breaks something else. You have these chain... Mm -hmm. So definitely in the early days of the inflate bigger structures outside, we were coming across a lot more operational. So it's not a design issue, Mm -hmm. but it was a lot of operational issues that we had to gradually build in. So that kind of forced the business to go down a very kind of sensible practical route and so whilst we were still doing very exciting structures we were heavily constrained by and unavoidably constrained by making sure we made everything safe Mm -hmm. and that is the most you know when you go down that route it's the single most important thing Mm. safety has to be first there's nothing else more important and uh, you mean I had someone I know had, him was going a bit morbid now, had two people die in one of his structures and he went to prison. But fundamentally what happened was he'd been running an art event and as an art installation, it kind of circumnavigated some of the regulations. Mm -hmm. And because he'd been going for so long, no one was questioning its integrity until it broke. But I, we'd always been challenged, that so we always knew. But I, I felt incredibly sad for this person and more sad for the people that passed away is they were all victims of kind of... It wasn't so much... I don't think it was so much genuine negligence. I think it was prolonged inexperience. Mm. And, that was, and so that, that kind of... That seeing that happen and being aware of that was really bad. And that's why when we... When I started developing the aircraft business, we've engineered a really strong system. The whole thing has been about creating a platform to be massively creative with. Mm-hmm. And so that's been really, really successful and has, and has taken away the risk. All of those risks that we saw in that world with the bigger inflate structures, we took with aircraft and we designed and engineered those out from the beginning mm-hmm. so that we could go forward and explore what airclad could do and that's so that's yeah that's that's the sort of sort of a difficult thing but the kind of realization of shifting and like i said my business has changed probably six or seven times in the in the years i've been going and we are now very much primarily a structure a mobile architectural business as as the main the main state, but I can't let things go like my hoarding of digital images. I keep inflate and we keep coming back and inflate's been actually the busiest it's been in the last two years and during COVID was mentally busy. So it has its relevance. I don't know whether it's fashion has come back to inflatables or what it might be, but mm-hmm. there is definitely a renaissance in air at the moment. <laughs> so is there is there something that fascinates you about air, or is it more which 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 part is it? Is it the welding? Is it the object? Is it the air? I think I think the thing that's really good about it is and it, and I'll, I'll answer it with two bits. When I first started doing inflatables back in the nineties, as I keep mentioning. Um, I had a good friend come up to me and I'd been doing inflate for about three months and he said, oh, when are you going to move on from inflatables? And I said to him, I don't even think we've even touched the tip of what's potential with inflatables. Mm -hmm. And I can say that I never thought I would spend my, today, my life working with inflatables, but all the time I'm working with it, we're discovering new things. I'm seeing new stuff all the time. Mm-hmm. And because the world changes, the relevance of what you do changes and the appropriateness moves around. So it's constantly evolving. Mm-hmm. But what I really like is, is the fact that, as I said earlier about kind of opportunity of chance or happy accidents, 
inflatables were built for it. Because when you design something deflated, when you inflate it, it changes. Mm-hmm. And you can never really, like when you said about using, um, what's the program you've been using? Blender. Blender. I challenge, you know, some of the things that I make and blow up don't look anything like you expect. Even when I've, with all the experience I've had, I'm still blowing stuff up and going, why the fuck's it doing that? <laughs> why is it going that way? Why is it going that way? I worked this all out based on years of experience. Mm-hmm. And so that's always cool. That's what keeps you excited is that mm-hmm. I know, like I know when I go to go, if I sit with the welder and do something, half the time I'm getting something new that I didn't quite expect, even if I'm really prescribed with it. And I'm still just as happy when I make certain welds that just go beautiful. I think, oh, that's just, just the best world ever. You know, it's like, you know, there is a signature as well. I don't know in your business, but there, I believe there's a, you know, like we all have our own handwriting and mm-hmm. stuff. I actually believe when we make things, craft stuff, that there's a signature to it as well. I think I have a signature how I work with inflatables, mm-hmm. which if you really analyse, if there was another... 200 inflatable makers, I reckon we'd all have different signatures of how we do stuff. And I think that's what I like as well. So whilst I'm doing it my way, I also know it's not the only way. Mm-hmm. And so it's, that's kind of exciting because you just know there's the infinite possibilities. So it's the possibilities and just the surprise really, isn't it? Um, with your 20 years of experience and your Let's entire... Let's keep it at 20. <laughs> <laughs> Not 30. 20 odd. 20, 20 odd. odd years. And uh, your massive body of works, honestly, I think. Uh, and it's very fun to look at. I think this is what really, really excited me. It was, it's really fun to look at. And... <laughs> So this brings me a bit to creativity. Do you have for yourself, and also as you mentioned, to leave room for chance or also to kind of unlearn in a way to to make something new happening? Do you have a creative practice? Do you, do you mean by like process or...? Well... I'm taking myself as an example. I Good. recently <laughs> just bought Play-Doh because... Okay. Because I just needed to get out of, like, any, you know, like, no pen, no... Nothing, like, digital, no screen. So I just bought Play-Doh and... Uh, um, see what happens. And just see what happens as a creative practice, basically. <laughs> Uh, when you say play though, all I think of is putting it in my hands and squeezing it and letting yeah. it come through my it's fingers. It's so satisfying. <laughs> yeah, it's so say. satisfying. Yeah, I can I can see that. I think that I think for myself, yet first of all, I'm I'm I spend my whole life fascinated by things and how they're made and what and imagining in my head what's gone on behind them. And and so there's a sort of degree of just existing. I think it's annoying for my children because they just see me zone out <laughs> and I just zone out into my world and that is worrying and the worrying thing is I don't even know I'm doing it mm-hmm. they know it I don't mm-hmm. but I'm in it so there's a degree of that in terms of the physical there's two there's a couple of things one is that um I think I like to just work an- very analog anyway so cardboard templates maquettes it's funny actually how much how little young designers now who are using computers will go and make models i can't i can't believe it like and i i don't make enough but like i've been saying in the office recently that we're, we're actually moving to a new space and there's going to be a dedicated workshop at the moment the workshop's connected to the design bit where with computers are and it's all a bit chaotic but having a dedicated area where I want to be able to make make models and instead of just drawing it on the computer actually making scale models that that I think is really helpful from my side in terms of therapy of design I probably have an issue that 
I, I think I just I'm in it all the time. I I think that getting the play doh is a good idea. I think um, for me, my most creative moments are weekends when I'm relaxed. I think during the week, it's quite there's a degree of functionality to what's going on. But I think the weekends are when it comes alive when you get up early on a Sunday morning and have a cup of tea and just you just doodle mm-hmm. and think mm-hmm. and things things happen. I think it's like a de-stressing as well. All those bits that have been knotted inside you come out i'm not saying every sunday that's my my thing because it certainly isn't but i think things boil up Mm. and then you have to release them out but i do think that going off i really want to go and do near where we are in antwerp is a is a place called westmile which makes very nice beer but also has a pottery a ceramic thing where you can go and make your own pots I'm desperate to do some of that now it wasn't just because you said play-doh but that I like the idea of going to do something completely uniquely different which would also is fun and these things exist around to go and do as well and uh, mm-hmm. no for no other reason but for that I think it's very funny that you say pottery because it's like clay, earth, you know, and it's the complete opposite of air. I like, I've always liked, one a project we did early on was I made some air moulds for concrete. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And I really love concrete and inflatables. I think oh. they're, because they're so bloody opposite, but they go together so well. Oh, just, but let, how do how like paint me a picture? How do like what does a mold for concrete look like? Because concrete so, is also really heavy. Yeah, so I made I made some inflatable forms, mm-hmm. and then I poured liquid concrete inside them when they were deflated, like sacks. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then I sealed them up. Then I pressurized them uh-huh. to get a form, and so I was casting the concrete in the negative space of the inflatable. Because you see, you sealed it up with the liquid concrete inside, inside. already. Oh. oh, wow, so it's like a seamless... Yeah, well, and then when you deflate, when you cut it out, you have to sacrifice the mould, but yeah. when you cut it out, you see the inside of the seam mm-hmm. and the creases. I love the creases that are there. So like, when I first did the inflatable products, we, um, as I said, we did spend a lot on professional photography. The photographer we worked with, him and I, or him, he drove it a lot more than me. He became fascinated that we got rid of the creases for all of the photography. Oh. So we inflate, we warmed up all of the inflatables so they went soft. Mm-hmm. And we blew them up harder to get rid of the creases. So when he photographed them, we were almost... You almost didn't know it was inflatable, apart from the little valve. And we always made sure you could see the valve. Mm-hmm. So we were hiding the inflatable element, but then showing the valve. And it looked they looked really pure and like almost... Like I always wanted them to be hyper real, like more real than they really were. But when we did the concrete casting, I wanted the creases because mm-hmm. I love the idea that the concrete was creased. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. so nice. You get this hard object that's got these beautiful creases in it yeah. that are untouched because they're, they're not being carved. They are just existing as creases in this pressurised mould. Yeah, because then it also creates this like cloth-like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. On the concrete, and how cheap it was for me, how cheap was that? You get a little bit of PVC and some concrete, cast it. Before you know where you are, you got, we made, I made some seats for a project that's really cool. It's like a tractor seat, you know, those classic old tractor seats, but it was a blobby concrete with these creases where it had been inflated, and you could sit in it, it was actually all right. <laughs> And I made some other, like, just some little bowl things and concept stuff. But I really, when you looked at it, it was really, and they're bloody heavy. Mm-hmm. They they just kind of at a glance look quite delicate, but really industrial. But then I think, and I haven't done this, is the idea of fusing, fusing it all together, the inflatable and the concrete. Where mm-hmm. could that go? Mm-hmm. Another project to be done in the... Future time, but it's there to be done, and this and it, and then you see when you 
get into it, you just see there's a whole world of possibility again. And that's a whole other person's life. Yeah. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. So to land this plane, Nick, what are we going to see from you in the future and where can people find you? Okay, so I can be found... I'll tell you where I can be found. I can be, I can be found at, on Instagram at inflate001 and inflate.co.uk and hairclad.com. The future is... It, for me at the moment, I'm going to end on a slightly heavier note. Mm -hmm. The future for me is really looking at how we... All of what I've learned as a product designer and doing events and predominantly in the last probably decade working a lot with how to we spend a lot of, we, we do a lot in the marketing events world advertising and we've seen how to use our structures to really engage and motivate people i'm really it's not going to happen quick but i'm really fascinated that i think we have a compelling opportunity to do something with real architecture and actually create uh, potentially a way to uncouple buildings from land to create reusable mobile architecture to live in and using the inflating element as a structural element to allowing that to happen and also as an insulating element to help create mobile structures that are off-grid, low energy but 100% reusable so you use them when you want to and then you can move them to elsewhere and yeah, if we're very topical at the moment in terms of helping solve social problems around the world and stuff like that so I know it's a bit it, it's moved a long way from an inflatable fruit bowl and an egg cup but you know if you think about your learnings and It's the fact that when I was started out, I thought I knew more than I did, and I've realised I know very little. I kind of feel at the moment, as I've got a lot, learned a lot from mobilising stuff, I want to see if I can prod something. But it's, it's a kind of to try and help something in the future. It's not like a here and now business thing. It's a kind of something I think can evolve. So that's my... But we're going to keep inflating little stuff as well. So it's... Uh, <laughs> We're going to keep the workshop. The workshop will stay. We'll keep making inflatable objects, whatever's needed, really. I'm really excited to watch everything that you're going to keep doing. I think it's really, really fascinating. And, And you've come such a long way. Like, to be honest, it's uh, very cool. I hope you enjoyed our episode today. Stay tuned and I'll catch you next time with another episode of That's My Niche.